From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some of the people who recover from a COVID-19 infection continue to deal with side effects for weeks or months after. Dr. Claudine Ward takes care of some of these patients with what has been called long COVID, and she's my guest today. Dr. Ward is an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. Thank you so much for making time for this interview, Dr. Ward. Thank you. Is there a formal definition of long COVID? That's a great question. There, there is no uh, universal consensus in terms of what long COVID is. In fact, you'll see a lot of terminology that is used interchangeably uh, with long COVID, such as post COVID-19 syndrome, uh, COVID, uh, chronic COVID syndrome, and there's even something called PASC or post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that's quite a mouthful. But it is really important that we standardize the definition if we want to provide adequate service provision and care. So some of the things on the table in terms of defining what it is, is you know, what's the time frame that we're looking at? It, are we going to consider it long COVID if a person has symptoms four, four weeks out versus four months out? How do we differentiate between a person who has fatigue syndrome versus permanent uh, organ damage? And even things like, is there a number of symptoms that, that would need to, to qualify? There are definitions out there. So just to give you one, for example, um, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence defines it as signs and symptoms that develop during or after uh, COVID-19 infection that persists more than four weeks. So are the people who have severe cases of COVID, are they more susceptible to having these lingering symptoms than someone who had a mild case? Potentially. So looking at the re research that we have thus far, there are some patterns that are emerging, but there's always an exception uh, to the rule. But it does look like the severity of the initial disease can put someone at risk for more uh, persistent symptoms. There's also um, some data to suggest that having five or more symptoms at the time of a, a person's acute illness um, may also predispose them to these to these persistent symptoms, as well as certain blood uh, markers. So things that you could see on, on the blood, women are perhaps more susceptible, as well as a person who has a history of a psychiatric diagnosis. What about children? Are they susceptible to this just like adults are? Early on, we did not think so, but yes, it does appear that they are susceptible. Wow. Now, you mentioned, you know, symptoms may go four weeks or whatever. It could, could problems linger indefinitely? Could there be permanent damage? It is too early to say whether there could be permanent damage only because the research is only going out about six months. In time, we're going to have more information on that. But if we look at the other uh, viral syndromes that we have uh, dealt with in, in the past, for example, SARS or uh, severe respiratory syndrome, it looks like some of these symptoms that people are describing uh, may take months uh, to clear up. And if someone has tissue damage, it is possible that they may have permanent uh, changes and permanent symptoms. But overall, it does appear that symptoms improve. Well, can you tell us, among the patients that you and your colleagues care for in physical medicine and rehabilitation, what are the most prevalent symptoms that patients tend to be battling? Well, I think you, you know, in terms of, um, if they come to see me because of my specialty, I tend to see them for more of the neurological 
manifestations. Um, so that would include something called brain fog, um, fatigue, even things like cognitive changes, so people may not be able to concentrate as much. They may not have a mental stamina, for example. We are seeing mood changes uh, following or in, within this long COVID um, type of, of syndrome. Sleep changes, people may have insomnia. They may not um, sleep throughout the night and they may feel uh, tired in the morning. We're also seeing a number of people who have headaches as well as changes in, in uh, taste and smell that haven't returned yet. So what you're describing, brain fog, fatigue, um, mood changes, headaches, um, collectively, can these debilitate someone to where they're you know not able to go to school or work or, or do their regular life activities? Absolutely. I mean, it does, when we talk about fatigue, you know, for, for, for a person who is, um, it had, you know, it doesn't have any other things going on. Fatigue gets better if you rest, but the fatigue that we're talking about is a tiredness that despite rest, you're not able to participate in activities of daily living. Simple things like dressing, uh, bathing, they may not be able to return to work because of this fatigue or even manage their, their household. When you add other symptoms that we can see, which I'm not seeing people for, but certainly are common, like heart racing, there's a lot of people who have what's something called like breathlessness or shortness of breath. If you add that on um, to what a person is feeling, the, the, the price of expending energy just may be too much for that person and, and it can be debilitating taken as a whole. I've read about patients who were hospitalized with COVID, had severe cases, maybe they were on a ventilator, but they were hospitalized for weeks, and then they have to learn to walk again. And I wonder, is that because they were just lying in a hospital bed for so long, or does the virus do something to the musculoskeletal system? There are a variety of things that could cause a person to not be able to, to walk well and have to, to learn how to walk. We know that if a per, if a person is um, in bed for even a week, uh, that they can uh, develop deconditioning and even loss of of muscle mass, and that's outside of of being sick. Uh, so certainly, when a person is in the hospital for weeks, sometimes even even months, there's going to be a consequence to that. When you have what we call critical illness, so for example, someone who's been in the uh, intensive care unit, there are other entities such as what we call myopathies or neuropathies, so changes in the muscle itself, changes in the nerve um, itself that that can make it more, much more difficult to, to walk. Um, but we can't also forget that there, you know, with the COVID-19 infection, you can have even more, not that, not that the myopathies and neuropathies aren't serious, but people have had strokes because of COVID-19, or they've had what we call anoxic or hypoxic injuries, which means the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, and that can change the way a person walks. They may actually have weakness on one side, for example. Um, joint pain is common, muscle pain is common, so it may be hard or uncomfortable to walk. And then like we talked about before, uh, if you have the, the heart racing or the palpitations and the shortness of breath, the ex your, a person's exercise tolerance may not be, um, may not be what it needs to be uh, to walk. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Claudine Ward, who specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate. So let's talk about what physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists like yourself can do 
to help people with long COVID? What is the rehabilitation like? What does it include? Yeah, it's it's in the it's in its infancy in terms of you know what we're what we are um, offering our, our patients who who come to us. This is really uh, meant to. It has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So in terms of, you know, can a person go straight to exercise? What we have to do is make sure that their uh, post-acute symptoms, like their heart rate, like their breathing abilities, we need to make sure that those are managed appropriately. Um, so, for example, if someone has shortness of breath, we have to know what the extent of the disease is. If uh, if their oxygen levels are okay sitting down, and even with a little bit of, of exertion, which we can check with something called a uh, pulse oximeter, um, if their oxygen levels are adequate, we could, for example, our, our therapist could help with breathing exercises with the idea of just expanding the lungs. If, however, the breathlessness is more problematic, then we would really need them to, to see a, a pulmonologist for additional testing. Likewise, with irregular heart rates, or um, if a, a pulse is going too quickly and people feel what they call palpitations, the, they probably would need an EKG or electrocardiogram. And if it's severe or it doesn't get better, uh, you would also want to send them to a cardiologist who could do additional uh, testing, but so it seems like it could be very individualized to the to the person. It's absolutely individualized. It's you know the this is one of the um, this is one of the entities that you could. You, it's not a one size uh, fits all. Well, let me ask you: if someone say was an elite athlete before they got COVID um, versus someone who wasn't in good health, maybe was a smoker, that type of thing, is the elite athlete? necessarily going to have a better time recovering or not? Not necessarily, because it does depend on the severity of of the illness acutely, but also what they're going to find weeks out. The, the, um, the testing that may need to be done for the, the athlete uh, is probably going to be a little bit more uh, uh, complete at the beginning only because we know that at that level, at the elite level, you really are going to be straining the heart, for example. So a person who isn't going to be straining the heart on a day-to-day -day basis may not need an echocardiogram, for for example. So the so the outcome is may or may not be uh, the same, may, may or may not be different, but the the, the, what we do for that patient certainly is going to be tailored to what uh, the individual individual needs. Is there advice that you find yourself giving to all these patients routinely? Yes, it's it's pace yourself. Uh, if you're having symptoms, you know, weeks out, months out, it's not going to go away likely, um, you know, overnight. So pacing themselves. Uh, cognitively pacing themselves physically is really the way to go. I'd like to get back to brain fog and the neurological things that you really um, specialize in. Do we have a full understanding of what causes this? We don't, which obviously makes treatment very difficult. They believe studies are, are looking at this and it looks like there might be dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system. So this the system that controls involuntary actions like our heart rate, but we don't have a full understanding of why a person develops brain fog. 
how similar is it or how different is it um, compared to a uh, head injury or concussion? It's strikingly similar in terms of when people are talking about uh, brain fog. So uh, in with a person who's had concussion, brain fog is a very common uh, symptom that's reported to us, you know, sometimes months out as, as well. And so people who have brain fog, they talk about a lack of clarity, mental clarity. They have difficulty focusing. They feel forgetful. And some people even talk about uh, confusion. So uh, there's not a medication to fix this, I gather, but I mean, what advice do you have? I mean, how do people relieve this brain fog? We wish there were medication. There, There isn't yet. I mean, there are medications to help with uh, fatigue, but really they, there isn't a, a medication that has been recommended for this particular um, cause of, of brain fog. We do have a new consensus statement that was uh, sent that was uh, published by the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab recently, uh, and it, it's a nice tool that is that was created by a multidisciplinary uh, team. And what their recommendations are uh, is to pace themselves, pace, have a person um, take time again, so not overdoing it. Uh, and we know that rest is important. But we also know that too much rest could be problematic. So there, it looks like there's a role in what we call submaximal threshold exercise or exercise that doesn't provoke uh, symptoms, exercise that we're not um, having the person get their heart rate too high. But again, we really wanna make sure that there are other um, issues like the their heart rate, like their breathing are addressed adequately before we get them into that type of program. Are you able to give a person a projection as for how long they're still going to have the brain fog? I mean, does it take weeks or months to go away, or or can you even predict that? It's very hard to predict. If someone is coming to see me in three months, four months after their acute illness, and they're still having symptoms, I can say with some certainty that it's going to be at least a few more weeks. But someone who's coming a little earlier, that's hard. That's harder to predict. Will someone wake up one morning no longer feeling foggy, or is the recovery more of a gradual thing? Likely it's more gradual. It's possible that they may wake up, but I, I'm not seeing those, those patients. All right. Well, are there specific activities that you suggest people avoid if they're dealing with brain fog? Is it safe to be physical and, you know, exercise, go for your run, drive? Yeah, the, in terms of in terms of activity related to brain fog, the, if we're not talking about heart issues or lung issues, it's really a matter of what can you safely attend to. So if you're having troubles concentrating, you really don't want to do something that is dangerous. So, for example, if um, you know you, you probably don't want to be uh, exposing yourself to uh, to unprotected heights, for example, maybe ladders, if you're easily distracted and you may forget where your, your foot is in, in space. Um, driving is another uh, activity that may not be safe for a person if they really do have severe uh, brain fog. So that's one of another uh, an, another case where working with, with a, a, their medical provider and figuring out what is safe um, for a person is, is really important. 
I've heard that when you're recovering from a concussion, you're not supposed to read or watch TV or use electronic devices. Does that also apply to someone who's got brain fog? And if so, I mean, that that really limits their ability to do a lot of things. Yes, I, I with with concussion, when a person has the those when they have difficulty with reading or tolerating screens, they do have to limit. In 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 uh, reality, though, complete uh, completely eliminating those activities is, is impossible, especially in in, in today's world. Uh, it, it is surprising, though. You know, you asked the question about with brain fog, and is it similar to what we see with concussion? It is surprising that uh, this. Uh, that people who have had uh, COVID-19 and are still having symptoms, they also talk about uh, decreased reading tolerance or sensitivity to light, even though that hasn't been um, highlighted as much in, in the literature. So, so just based on what we know from other uh, other disease processes, other injuries, we would recommend similar types of avoidance. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you, I mean, it seems like this recovery might be frustrating for someone. Is there a need for mental support? That's another great question. So there, in addition to fatigue, uh, changes in sleep, mental health issues ha are actually quite, uh, quite common uh, to the order of, there was a, a study in, in China uh, looking at uh, I think there were 1,700 patients, and they were able to follow these patients out for six months. And it was close to 23%, I believe, uh, that uh, that had met criteria for anxiety and depression. We also see a number of people who develop a post-traumatic stress disorder. So that does have to be part of the intake when you're seeing a, a patient, because we want to make sure that their that their mood is is. Uh, controlled, that they're not feeling particularly anxious. It's very easy for someone to say, oh, all of these symptoms are related to your anxiety, but it's much more complex than that. Uh, and we would offer, for example, counseling if we thought that was appropriate. Well, I really appreciate you making time for this interview. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Claudine Ward, an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.